Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm a few hours late today as my international underwear modelling assignment overran, but we still just made it into Tuesday. In today's case, we head back to the northeast to cover a double murder, and I'm very grateful to a listener of the podcast, who wishes to remain anonymous at this time, for his excellent research and writing on this case. If you want to get in touch with him, please just contact me via normal ways. I must thank my Patreon supporters this week, that's Sarah Carr, Laura Hodgson, Belle Struck, Debbie Botha and Josie Aplin. Thank you all so much for your support. One last point, this week I chatted with Angela and Ali on the excellent podcast The Friend You Need. If you haven't listened to it before, take a listen, it's a great show. And if you need to listen to my interview, please head over to UKTrueCrime.com. 2008 started in tragic fashion with the death of the brilliant actor Heath Ledger. It seems incredible that was nearly 10 years ago now, doesn't it? When he died, he was just 28 years old. The whole world was united in revulsion after the disturbing case of Joseph Fritzl came to light in Austria. As I'm sure you recall, Fritzl was a 73-year-old man who confessed to imprisoning his own daughter in a cellar for 24 years and fathered her seven children. And as followers of true crime, we know that somewhere across the globe while we go about our daily lives, something similar is happening today. November of 2008 saw two equally earth-shattering events. Firstly, Barack Obama became President of the US and John Sargent quit Strictly Come Dancing as the British public conspired to try and vote him to victory, despite his rather, well, wooden performances. Mind you, people in glass houses and all that, you should see me trying to strap my stuff on the dance floor. It's not a pretty sight. In UK music, Alexandra Burke achieved the biggest selling single of the year with her X Factor winner song, Hallelujah, which was also the Christmas number one for the year. Are you a fan or is previous winner Steve Brookstein more your thing? I'm no concert promoter, but if you like Stevie, I have a feeling there are still tickets available for his next gig. At the time of this case we're going to cover today, August 2008, Katy Perry was at number one in the US with I Kissed a Girl. In sport, Man United won the Champions League via a penalty shootout against Chelsea. No doubt like me, you couldn't stop the tears rolling down your cheeks as the ever-popular John Terry slipped whilst taking his spot kick. And 2008 also saw the beginning of the era of the dominant Spanish football team as they beat Germany in the final of the European Championships. From here, they completed the treble by winning the following two international tournaments. Newcastle-upon-Tyne is a thriving city in the northeast of England. Have you been there? If not, you absolutely should. Today, it's often seen as a popular and exciting night spot with friendly locals. Us southerners are in awe at how, despite the Arctic conditions, the locals don't ever feel the need for a jumper, let alone a coat. The city attracts revellers pretty much throughout the year for weekends and nights out, with a seemingly infinite number of bars and clubs to choose from, especially near the infamous quayside. It makes it ideal for a stag or a hen party destination. It's also a football-mad city, and the stadium, St James's Park, 
sits in the very centre of the city. All the times I've been to Newcastle, there's certainly a feeling that football is never far from people's thoughts. The city, once famous for its industry, it now attracts a diverse range of people of many ages, and its transformation to a more cosmopolitan city is seemingly complete. There are also two excellent universities in Newcastle, Northumbria and Newcastle University, both of which attract a large number of students to the city, both from the UK and further afield. The Arthur's Hill area of Newcastle is, as the name suggests, a large hill which overlooks the city. Situated to the west end of town, it's an ethnically diverse area and houses a significant Chinese population. Close by, there's even a small district known as Chinatown, with a range of excellent and popular Chinese restaurants, takeaways and food shops. Croydon Road is a main street within Arthur's Hill, and this is where two Chinese students, Zhen Ying Yang and Zai Su, both 25 years old, had decided to call home. They'd arrived separately in the UK to study at Newcastle University, and they met as students during their studies. The two had settled into life extremely well in the northeast, and as if to emphasise this, the pair preferred to be known by their anglicised names of Kevin and Cece. Cece had completed her MA degree in Applied Linguistics in 2006, and Kevin had completed his MA degree in International Human Resources in the same year. The pair's friendship had blossomed into romance, and they were enjoying all that the city had to offer a young couple. On the afternoon of August the 9th, at around 4.30pm, police were called to the ground floor flat in Croydon Road, after a friend of the couple had been unable to contact them. The friend had climbed through an insecure window after becoming concerned, and they found Cece lying face down on a bed in the front bedroom. She'd been gagged, and her hands and legs had been tied. Any hope her friend had that she was still alive and that this was just a burglary that had gone wrong was dashed very quickly when she saw that her head had been bludgeoned with a hammer. Upon finding Cece, the friend raised the alarm and when the police arrived they were confronted with further grisly sights. Kevin's body was found in the back bedroom, his skull had been smashed with a hammer and his throat had been savagely cut. Detective Superintendent Steve Wade was charged with heading up the murder inquiry and he stated that the crime scene was very unpleasant and one of the worst I have seen during a long career. Detectives don't just say these types of things to shock. The scene must have been one of unimaginable horror. Many times in this podcast we have stopped to reflect on the truly horrific sights and the smells experienced by our police officers who arrive at these awful crime scenes. Can you actually imagine the reality? I'm not too sure that I can. Autopsies on the bodies revealed the savage violence used by the pair's killer. The forensic pathologist stated that there was far more violence than you're used to seeing, even in a murder scene. Kevin alone had in excess of 50 head injuries. His face and head had been mercilessly beaten with a hammer and his throat had been slashed. It was thought that Cece had not been in the flat at the time of Kevin's death and she'd returned to the Croydon Road flat following a shift at the restaurant somewhere around 4.10pm on the afternoon of the killings, unaware of what was waiting for her. It was believed that her boyfriend was already dead by the time she arrived home and that the killer, or killers, 
were inside the flat waiting for her. Cece's death was no less callous and shocking. She'd been gagged with a piece of toweling which was stuffed into her mouth before the killer taped her mouth shut. Her wrists, feet and lower legs were also bound with adhesive tape. She was then placed face down on the bed before being struck a number of times to the back and side of the head of a hammer. There was a further find made by officers as they discovered that whoever had perpetrated this awful attack had even drowned the couple's pet cat, stuffed it into a bucket and left it under the sink. Detectives were also certain that Kevin had been tortured for a significant period of time before his death. But why? What could this couple possibly have done to deserve to be killed in this way? It was clear that due to the extent of the injuries, police knew this was more than an attempted burglary gone wrong. The double murder continued to baffle police. Just why would such a seemingly popular young couple be targeted in such a vicious attack? The local Chinese community were also understandably concerned. Was it possible there was a racial element attached to the murders? Should other people in that community be concerned? As the crime scene was scoured for any evidence or any possible clues, it was found that a laptop and a number of mobile phones were stolen from the flat. Surely that couldn't have been the motive. Another important find was also made. A pair of men's khaki trousers which were heavily bloodstained. They were a size 36 inch waist and Kevin was only a 31 inch. Upon analysis, the blood splatter distribution showed that they must have been worn by the killer or at least someone who stood very close to the murder scene. Furthermore, the police were able to obtain a full DNA profile from the waistband of whoever had worn the trousers. The tests not only extracted the DNA profile but confirmed that the person that had worn them was of oriental descent. The investigation now turned global. Police hoped for an early resolution and immediately ran the results through the UK and the China databases, but no matches were found. Detectives then began the process of understanding everything they could about Kevin, Cece and their lives. As the detectives began to dig, they discovered that the pair had advertised a room to rent a flat. It transpired that during a telephone call with his mum, back in China on the evening for the murders, Kevin had told her that they had in fact recently found a lodger for the room. The police felt this could be crucial information and they set about trying to find the identity of this lodger. They turned to Crime Watch UK, a BBC TV programme that we've mentioned here before many times and before it was ruined by rubbish modern formats and erratic scheduling, it was watched by millions and used by police to shed light on a range of crimes where they felt the public might be able to help. Both Kevin and Cece's parents also travelled to the UK to hold an emotional and heartfelt press conference, where Cece's father said that the family would not rest until justice was done. We can only imagine how the families of both Kevin and Cece felt. Their children are left home to develop themselves and to grow, to live in a different culture and enjoy new experiences but now they knew they would never see their son and daughter again. The Crime Watch reconstruction appeared to be a success. Only a couple of days after the broadcast of the programme, a member of the public called the incident room. The caller claimed that his son had been playing with a friend in Nunsmore Park in Newcastle, which is 
an attractive spot where many families enjoy spending leisure time. On this particular day, however, the two boys unwittingly made a vital discovery when they found a plastic carrier bag. On the surface, just a modest find, but it had great significance all the same. The bag was knotted up with Tasmanian Devil Christmas tape, of all things, but the curious youngsters managed to open the bag and they found three mobile phones inside, although the batteries and SIM cards had all been removed. One of the boys took the bag home and put their own SIM cards and batteries into the phones and fired them up. When he found pictures of Chinese people on one of the phones, the boy alerted his parents, one of whom had seen the Crime Watch programme two nights earlier. They immediately contacted police and handed the phones in for investigation. Meanwhile, detectives continued to probe the lives that had been led by Kevin and Cece, as well as their personal finances. It was after such work that the police were able to establish a possible motive for the murders, a realistic motive that is. It became apparent that Kevin and Cece had been involved in an internet betting scam, which had seen over £200,000 pass through their accounts over a two-year period. This was an exciting major breakthrough for the police, offering up a new line of genuine interest. Did somebody want a share of this money? Or had the couple scammed the wrong person? With telephone experts examining the three phones that had been found, police were hoping that soon a clue may be unearthed to help them make an arrest. The need for the police to act quickly following such a crime is obvious. As mentioned earlier, the city has a large Chinese population and their fears and concerns would potentially grow the longer the time passed without an arrest. And also the wider population, a brutal murder with so much violence, it puts the whole community on edge. We must also remember that the victims' families had no experience whatsoever of how the police in the UK operate. During their darkest moments, they suddenly found themselves dealing with agencies completely outside the realm of any previous experience. And quite naturally, they must have been sceptical about how the police would go about tackling the murders. At a very basic level, there was a substantial language barrier to contend with. But they need not have worried. As Detective Steve Wade asserted, we did everything possible to meet these challenges, keeping them updated about the investigation and talking them through the process using Mandarin language interpreters. Forensic experts had also been working with the police and they'd recovered a number of unidentified fingerprints from the scene. But despite a search of the UK's national database and other databases across Europe and China, still no name was forthcoming. As we've heard in previous podcast episodes, there are times when the police's pursuit of justice is laborious and slow, with no real evidence or possible motive for a crime. In this case, detectives had all the evidence required, but they just needed to link this with a potential suspect. Another piece of information that the police were aware of was that CC had been in contact with someone calling themselves Tank Tank online, on a website that was popular with the city's Chinese community, where prospective tenants and landlords communicated with each other while looking for accommodation in the city. Checks on CC's phone revealed that she'd been in contact with someone using the same mobile phone that Tank Tank had listed on the internet site. The mysterious lodger that police were so keen to trace now had a name. Well, sort of, anyway. 
Further inquiries about identifying the mysterious Tank Tank led to the identification of a 30-year-old man named Gung Hai Chow, who police traced to Morpeth, which is an attractive market town about 15 miles to the north of Newcastle. Police sent a surveillance team to the town and soon afterwards followed this up with an arrest team who nearly three months following the murders made the arrest of the man they believed to be Tank Tank. On searching his house in Morpeth, they had success straight away. Police found trousers stained with Kevin's blood and a watch and glasses taken from the victims. They even recovered rolls of the same type of Tasmanian devil tape used to tie up the dump bag found by the two children. More damningly though, Chow, unaware that the police had his khaki trousers and a DNA profile, was swabbed for DNA and it matched the sample gleaned from the blood-stained trousers, mobile phones and carrier bag. It seemed they got their man. In the face of this overwhelming evidence, there was still no guilty plea from the accused. Instead, an arrogant Chow pled not guilty and in doing so, chose to put the victim's families through the ordeal of a horrific trial. Prosecutor Robert Smith QC told the court that Kevin had been involved in illegally preparing false certificates of qualifications for the Chinese community. He also further elaborated on the part he had played in assisting in a fraudulent betting operation. It was revealed that Kevin had placed ads on UK-based Mandarin language websites in attempts to recruit people to watch football matches around the world. Matches in China are televised a minute behind real time, and so this offered the opportunity for betting syndicates in China to take advantage of live information on the games via Kevin's recruits. Essentially, they were betting on events when already on the outcome. Prosecutor Smith claimed that in the space of three years, almost £250,000 had passed through their bank account, but they declared an income of just over 21000 It would seem that the couple's wealth and whispers about the scam had leaked out into Newcastle's Chinese community and that Chow wanted a piece of this action. He was prepared to go to considerable lengths, posing as a prospective tenant and infiltrating his way into their home. Prosecutor Smith added that illegal operations were certainly a realistic possibility in terms of motive, but not the only explanation. What the prosecution were sure about, however, was that the accused Chow was responsible for the murders. The court heard that Chow had come to the UK to study English in 2001 on a student visa, but he'd outstayed his welcome and at the time of the murders was in the country illegally. He had dodged immigration checks for years and he'd been working sporadically and earning a very limited income. Throughout the trial, Chow sat for the most part motionless and expressionless. Wearing a white shirt and glasses, he betrayed no care or remorse for his victims. However, somewhat bizarrely, during one part of the trial, he did suddenly start to exhibit some feelings, screaming at the jury that it was they who were killing him and that they were the murderers before being overpowered by police officers. We hear about this sort of behaviour a lot in this podcast. Do you think it's just a mixture of arrogance and sheer frustration at being caught? I wonder. Chow's defence was that he had indeed been in the flat at the time of the killings, but he'd also been blackmailed into this due to threats made at his family back in China. He claimed that he was merely a pawn as part of a criminal gang 
who themselves carried out the killings and had used him merely to gain access to the flat. He even said he'd been in the flat with the pair when the gang burst in and committed the murders, before tying Chow up and bundling him into a wardrobe. In the face of the overwhelming evidence gathered by detectives and Chow's rather shaky defence, on the 19th of May 2009, he was found unanimously guilty of both murders and sentenced to, and sentenced to serve at least 33 years before considered for release. As the jury foreman returned the verdicts, there were gasps and shouts of yes from the packed public gallery. Following this, Chow fainted in the dock next to his interpreter and the police officers. The judge described the killings as assassinations of exceptionally high seriousness, which would have involved horrifying and barely imaginable suffering. He also echoed what the police had feared, suggesting that Kevin and Cece had in some way crossed those involved in organising their criminal activities. He told the court that the brutal nature of the killings was possibly an example a clear message sent out to all that become embroiled in the scam, not to cross the organisers. As Chow was led away to begin his prison sentence, he took with him the explanation for why he killed Kevin and Cece and exactly went on in that Croydon Road flat. Although detectives assured that the victims were tortured in a bid to reach the cash the pair had been making, Detective Superintendent Wade also believes that there may well have been others involved, although nobody, or indeed Chow, has ever come forward to confirm this. From the police point of view, this had been an almighty challenge in terms of resources. More than 6,000 mobile phone checks and hundreds of internet usage inquiries have been made during the large and complex investigation. An added dimension to the inquiry had been trying to reassure Chinese opinion. To give you an idea of the interest in the case, an astonishing half a billion people had watched a TV briefing set up in London for the Chinese media. That is larger than the global TV viewing figures for the highest profile UK football games involving the mighty Leeds United even. Detective Wade was also complimentary towards the victims' families and their behaviour throughout their ordeal. Stating that he'd been impressed by their patience, courage and dignity under extremely traumatic circumstances. Indeed, It's with the victims and their families that we should close with. The pain and grief they have suffered and the frustrating feelings of helplessness must have been incredibly painful. Kevin and Cece were buried together back in China. Some of the relatives watched a trial via video link and an interpreter. Cece's father said after the verdict, There is an ancient Chinese saying, The most suffering one can go through in one's life consists of losing one's mother when one is still young, losing one's wife in the prime of one's life, and losing one's children in old age. This is especially true when one's child had been murdered. Kevin's mum, who was in Newcastle for the duration of the trial, said afterwards, This person did not just kill two people, he has killed two families. We have now been sentenced to go to hell. Our family will never be able to have any future generations. When we consider what we've heard here, it's impossible not to be moved. I think that Cece's mother's words that the families have been sentenced to go to hell stays with me. But I still struggle for a clear motive for this crime. It's very fuzzy. And this frustration was still shared by Detective Superintendent Wade 
after his retirement a couple of years ago when he spoke to the BBC. He said, We never established a motive for these killings, and in English law you don't have to prove a motive for murder. But to be able to convince a jury to convict, we had to suggest why these two people would be killed. We always believed some form of organised crime was behind it, and this is the idea we floated. And that, by its very nature, suggests there was more than one person involved, either in the planning or the killing itself. The judge described Chow as an assassin. But we went to China and we tried to find out about his background, but we found relatively little, which would suggest he was an assassin. The fact he was a bit of a Billy No-Mates and did not have a significant criminal record backs up this theory. We had lots of evidence that CeCe and Kevin were involved in a football betting scam. They were probably low levels in that, and perhaps for some reason they'd angered someone. Another line was the falsification of student certificates that could be used to get people into this country illegally, and again, they might have upset someone connected to this. Detective Wade closed by hoping that one day, others involved in the murder may come clean to police if they find themselves in trouble again. But there's no open investigation, and the police are not actively looking for anyone else. And unless anyone comes forward with new information, the investigation will remain closed. When you look at the issues in sports betting around the world, and in China, back in 2009, just after this case, 16 former Chinese football players and club officials were arrested. And in neighbouring Taiwan, the government ordered an investigation into its baseball clubs after the police penetrated a massive game-fixing ring there. With the money involved in gambling, especially in Asia, it seems likely that this was the reason for the murders. But whatever the police suspect about Chow being part of a wider gang, what seems quite clear is that he feared retaliation for speaking up, much more than he did the prospect of spending much of his life in jail. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. Please support the show at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where for just £3 a month, you'll have access to seven bonus episodes, plus other content. Please also head over to our Facebook group to join the conversation about all aspects of UK True Crime. You're very welcome there. But for me, until we speak again next week, it's cheerio.